Hello, my name's Will, and if you don't know me already, I do all things post-production for A Paranormal Chicks, so all the editing, making it sound good, all that kind of stuff. And as a part of that, at the end of every month, I uh, create some bloopers, which are kind of all the outtakes, Donna and Kerry messing up, stuff that basically doesn't make it into the final episodes that you hear, and once a month they come out on Patreon, so you can hear those, so if that's something you're interested in and want to hear the Donna and Kerry mess up, it's very funny, head on over to Patreon and check that out. But the reason why I'm here today is because Donna and Carrie have very graciously let me read a story for 31 Nights of Halloween. We are, of course, on day five now. It's very exciting. So this is going to be part one. There's going to be four parts in total. They're going to come out every Tuesday in October. I really hope you enjoy it. I had a lot of fun reading it. And by all means, jump in the Facebook group. You can at me, Will Dell, and let me know what you think of the story so far. So here's part one, and join me next week, same time next week, for part two. Enjoy. Part 1. The events of the past several days have both shaken my understanding of the world and left me with a disheartened and perplexed disposition. Yet I feel that I must organise these events in my mind, that I am compelled to structure the terrible things which I have seen so that my mind may be at rest and need to quantify what just took place. It was entirely by accident that I met one John Radcliffe. It was spring and the early crocuses were faring well against the last frozen constraints of winter's grip. I was researching an article I was writing for a publication which was, shall we say, less than reputable, when I found myself at the mercy of a small highland village for the evening. The whole ordeal was frustrating and tiresome to say the least. I was supposed to be back in Glasgow that night to type up my notes and brush off the fog, which often accompanied my writing assignments. Being stranded in a tiny village with one street and a pub, which looked like it hadn't been decorated since the Dark Ages, was not my idea of home comfort, especially after a few weeks of constant travel, interminable interviewees, and more than one restless night in a dingy bed and breakfast. There had been a small subsidence one town over, which had made it impossible for the local bus to continue onward, and, more importantly to me, carry me to safety. Following several phone calls as I attempted to procure alternative travel arrangements, it became apparent that I was going nowhere until morning. The sleepy pub, which was affectionately entitled The Lair of Dungorth, looking like it could fall down on top of me at any moment, complete as it was with warped wooden rafters and a clientele who appeared just as creaky, would have to be my home for the night. After speaking to the owner, a tall, peaked man in his fifties, I was kindly given a small room upstairs which clearly hadn't been slept in or cleaned for some time. Still, the people were nice enough, and after some basic but enjoyable local food, I sat in a cosy armchair by an old open fire in the bar, deciding to kill the boredom with a few pints of local beer and a bottle of wine. The flames danced around before me, and as the evening drew in, and the numbing of alcohol took effect, I actually was quite content, almost glad to be in such rustic surroundings. The village may have been somewhat bleak, but against the cold winds outside and a darkening sky, the pub was not without its charm. I'm not sure how long he had been sitting there, hypnotised as I was by the heat from under the mantelpiece and a few glasses of red, but it became apparent that I had been joined by another guest in the pub. He sat across from me in a broad and frayed armchair on the other side of the fireplace. 
sat there gazing at the flickering flames. He was curious in disposition. Outwardly, he appeared to be relatively young, probably in his early 30s, but his persona was swamped in a fragility which one would normally not expect to see in a man of that age. His face glowed in the firelight, carrying with it worry and lines which betrayed an inner turmoil. His eyes defocused, glazed over and his hands trembling slightly as he warmed them by the burning embers. Is there a problem? I heard the words but did not register them until they were repeated. Excuse me, is there a problem? The man addressed me in a sharp manner and I was taken aback by the realisation that I had been staring at him for several minutes. No, no, not at all, I answered apologetically. I, I thought I recognised you. As he turned to face me, he displayed in his expression a look of disbelief at my obvious lie, but thankfully not without a small vestige of good humour. I apologise if I was a little abrupt with you, he said. It's just that I am sick and tired of people staring at me around here. He raised his voice at the conclusion of his sentence and cast a wide eye around the pub to the few scattered drinkers and lurkers who populated it. I sensed that those present wished to avoid his gaze. We then diverted into an hour or so of small talk. His name was John Radcliffe, and he was a land acquirement agent from London. He claimed to be appraising a location nearby, which a local farmer was willing to sell off to property developers, but I immediately sensed that he was not comfortable talking about his work. In fact, he quickly changed the focus of the conversation onto me entirely, my job, my life, family, anything. It was as if he needed our exchanges to continue in an obviously failed attempt to keep his mind distracted from a hidden anxiety. Each time I attempted to ask a question about him or his life, he would either provide one or two word answers, or ignore them altogether, moving quickly into a question of his own. Finally, the conversation ran its course, as they often do with only one real participant. And for a moment, we sat in relative silence. The only sounds coming from a few locals propping up the bar, and the occasional clink of empty glasses being washed and cleaned by the owner. The pub was now noticeably dimmer, with most of the light being provided by a few small overhead lights, and the fire, which continued to crackle and flicker all evening. I turned to one of the windows outside, seeing nothing but darkness. Then, the words just escaped from my mouth, without a thought or effort. Why would people be staring at you, John? There was a long pause as I looked at him while awaiting an answer. His eyes trained to the floor, but his face etched in worry. I expected no in-depth response, given the curtness of his previous conversation, and so continued drinking my wine when he suddenly replied in a somber tone, They all know, but they don't have the courage to speak about it. Turning to the fellow drinkers still in the pub, he shouted, They're all afraid. The response from the landlord and his patrons was unusually muted. They seemed to ignore John's accusation entirely, with only the briefest hesitation of movement or conversation, proof that they had actually heard the outburst at all. I did not expect such a volatile response, but there was desperation in that shout, anger and frustration. Then, looking directly at me with what I can only describe as a mixture of fear and heartbreak, he opened his mouth as if to speak again, before hesitating once more. I sensed that the man deep down wished to finally relieve some of a burden, as if some piece of toxic information was boring into his very soul. As a writer, my curiosity was captivated by the possibility of an enthralling tale, perhaps even one I could use as the basis of a future article or story. Anticipating that he now only required the slightest push to confide in me, I leaned over and whispered, 
What is it? I could feel that I was about to become privy to something important. Yeah, by his trembling and anxious demeanour, I dreaded what that something might be. Another moment passed, and it was as if the entire room had fallen under a shadow of palpable silence. Then he spoke. If you'd be kind enough to share your wine with me, I'll be glad to tell you, he said softly. He did not have to say twice. I rose out of my chair and asked the bar for a second bottle and glass to share with my companion. There was a peculiar hesitancy as the landlord picked up both from the shelf behind him, placing them in front of me. As I returned to my seat, I knew those present were now watching me, and I felt in my bones that there was something uncomfortably stifling about their looks, shadowed accusatory glances steeped in fear. I poured a glass of wine, of which John drank in one gluttonous gloop, a sight I knew well was a man drowning a malignancy which burns inside. After pouring him another, I sat the bottle between us, waiting for him to tell the story. After looking down at his drink for a moment, he raised his head, staring intently at me as the fire crackled and burned. Then, as if exercising a burden from his soul, he began. John had initially intended on spending no more than a few days in the village, even after travelling all day from London, and the evening bringing with it the bite of Scottish winter, he intended to get started as quickly as possible. The quicker he was finished, the quicker he'd be home. Working for a large property acquisition firm, it was his job to facilitate rich clients in their pursuit of land on which to build. The individual he was representing at that time was especially interested in buying some farmland with beautiful country view where they wished to build a large holiday home for their family. The location in question had recently been put on the market by a local farmer who had fallen on difficult times as the economy wilted. John was therefore hired to evaluate the land and negotiate a price based on the recommendations made by a group of surveyors who had been there the previous week. After checking into the lair of Dungoth, he drove his car to the farm which was only a few miles outside of the village. The entire area consisted of large sprawling fields where crops were grown and animals grazed a few patches of woodland, and the occasional river or bubbling stream. The negotiations were relatively simple. The farmer, an elderly man by the name of Dale, needed an injection of money as soon as possible to keep the rest of the farm on its feet, while the buying client was enthusiastic about the potential purchase and wished to conclude the deal quickly. Regardless, John was always careful about finalising a deal before he himself had taken a look at the land. Over the years, he had developed a reputation for delivering exactly what a client wanted, without any nasty surprises after procurement, such as land subsidiaries or other planning difficulties. Although he didn't much enjoy the groundwork of surveying, he was well qualified to support anything which might cause difficulties at a later date. But despite this thorough attitude, he still hoped to be back in the city, perhaps as soon as the next day, all things being well. The farmer, Mr Dale, graciously agreed to take him out to the land by tractor, and it was not without a slight feeling of remorse that John listened to the old man describe the history of the area, his family's attachment to it, and why it was so important for him to keep the place going. But business was business, and the money Dale would make on the two fields in question would provide him with a substantial windfall, hopefully enough to help him weather the financial storm. Night approached quickly, and John was delighted that the bumpy and uncomfortable drive did not take too long. After a short time, Dale stopped the tractor, pointing to the two adjacent fields he was selling. 
For the next half hour, John sloshed through the mud and grass in his boots, taking photographs of where his clients were thinking of building, while perusing the surveyor team's notes, comparing them with his own observations. Dale did not wish to accompany him in the survey, and so stood by the side of a gravelled path, watching forlornly. Finally, John had finished, but just as he did, so his eyes were drawn to a hill a few miles away, one which looked out over the entire area. It appeared to be uninhabited, with what looked like patches of woodland and grassland being its only distinguishing features. Despite its distance, the hill seemed to dominate the horizon, and without verbalising it, he felt as though it was special, or unique somehow. On returning to the tractor, he pointed to it, but Dale seemed unwilling to talk about that particular subject, answering any questions pertaining to it with icy silence. It was John's job to keep a portfolio of land, which he thought clients might have been interested in, and with what looked to him like a beautiful view of the countryside, it would be something worth appraising for development, especially for a rich business person in love with the Scottish Highlands. On the short journey back to the farm, John felt compelled to continually glance over his shoulder at the hill, and was convinced that his professional instincts were telling him to investigate it more closely. After some annoying persistence, a farmer Dale eventually surrendered his silence and spoke briefly on the subject, with obvious disdain for the unusual landmark. When asked who owned it, even if perhaps Dale himself was the landlord, but at the mere mention of this, the farmer scoffed, saying only, no one owns that place, and no one goes there neither. He would not say much else, but before John departed for the pub, the farmer placed a reassuring hand on his shoulder and advised him to leave the hill alone that it was dangerous, and that he hoped he would never have to speak of it again. While Dale seemed to fear any mention of it, the overriding impression conveyed was that the old man was dominated by a profound sadness, one which was best left alone. As much as he was fascinated by the farmer's warnings, it was not the first time that John had encountered local superstitions, ones which, of course, he had never listened to. Otherwise, he might have lost out on a few good pieces of land or property through the years. The stories local would entertain him with always seemed to revolve around older, more remote parts of Britain. In the past, he had been told tall tales about abandoned houses which carried with them the stain of some murderous deed, or woods which should not be cut down for fear of what lived in them. But without exception, nothing untoward had ever happened. There was no solidity to the myths, and while he enjoyed listening to accounts of hauntings and strange beings which prowled the moors and open countryside, he had little time for them in his line of work. Such stories were a fun distraction, but beyond entertainment around a campfire, they served little purpose. Returning to the pub, he was tired and keen to get to bed, hoping to conclude any business the following day. But before he retired to his room, he decided to have a small nightcap at the bar. The landlord seemed amiable enough and happy to have someone staying there, as the pub's location often left it quite empty. But his friendly demeanour altered drastically at the mention of the hill. Much like Dale, the landlord seemed reluctant to give any detailed information about it, and provided his own words of warning, citing bad ground as reason enough to let it be. Whispers came from the darkened corners of the room, as locals seemed perturbed by John's questions. No one approached him, but he was well aware of their discomfort. His remark of, you'd think the hill was haunted, which was intended as a joke, provoked only silence. The void of sound left John feeling unwelcome. Quickly, he finished his drink and walked towards the stairs of his room. But as he did so, a young woman, barely out of her teens, gently touched him on the shoulder 
and whispered in his ear, Please don't go to the hill. No one ever comes back. The landlord was within earshot and quickly chastised the girl for even mentioning it, then turned his back while cleaning a pint glass, saying in a stuttered tone, You sleep well, sir. I hope you can conclude your business tomorrow and get back down to London quickly. To John, it sounded more like a warning than a simple good night. The next day, he rose early and made his way downstairs to be greeted once more by the landlord. But the man remained relatively quiet, which John found odd since he had seemed to be quite a talkative fellow when he first arrived. Dismissing his host as another individual averse to mornings, John grabbed a light breakfast and then made his way back out to the farm to conclude the purchase of Dale's land. As he drove along the quiet country roads, appreciating the impressive landscape, even in overcast weather, the farm came into view, but in the distance, so too did the hill. He thought that it seemed a little more prevalent or imposing than the day before, with its crooked structure leaning towards the village in the distance, but quickly shook those feelings from his mind, regarding them as the after-effects of the townsfolk and their superstitious behaviour. And yet there was something about that place. With only a few administrative duties left to perform, John was hopeful that he could be finished by noon and then make the long seven or eight hour drive back to London, finishing up some loose ends before taking part in his usual routine. On a desk in his apartment sat a 30-year-old bottle of malt whiskey, which he would pour a glass from after completing an important deal. This would be accompanied by a cigarette or two, the only time he smoked as he couldn't trust himself not to succumb to the habit. A takeaway meal and the next day off from work to do as he pleased. These were the times he enjoyed the most, the conclusion of a deal and a little break before, once again, being sent to another remote corner of the British Isles. Sitting in Farmer Dale's cottage, John enjoyed the coziness of the place and its antiquated decorations, which reminded him of his grandmother's house as a child. Many of the facings were original, and he was certain that much of the house must have stemmed back countless generations. Dale himself seemed in a more pleasant mood than the day before, making his guest a cup of tea and a sandwich while John prepared the last of the paperwork. As the old farmer potted around with a kettle and a pair of cups in hand, John glanced through a nearby window, noticing that the house itself looked out towards that nameless hill a few miles away. Without thinking, he mentioned casually that those at the pub seemed wary of it too. On giving John his tea, Dale sat down at the opposite end of the kitchen table, stirring his cup thoughtfully. There was another silence, similar to that of the evening before, and despite the cosy surroundings, John once again felt uncomfortable. Then, eventually, that unsettling feeling gave way to annoyance. Why should he not simply ask why people were so afraid of it? These were just superstitions, and it was madness to think that in the modern age, people could still be swayed so easily by simple stories. After toying with the idea of remaining quiet, John finally broke the silence. Mr. Dale, I don't mean to be rude, but ever since I arrived in the village, people seem to be acting strangely about that hill. They treat me like I've committed a crime just by mentioning it. Perhaps you did, he replied. Perhaps you shouldn't have mentioned it at all, son. With all due respect, I just wanted to know who owned it, as I thought it could be good for the area and exciting property development. Property development, Mr. Dale scoffed. The only thing that should be done with that place is that the ground be sown with salt. It's just a hill. Just a hill, the old farmer trailed off for a moment, 
looking out of the window towards the uncomfortable subject of their discussion. Mr. Dale, John said, this time more softly, I've been to many scenic locations around the UK. I know that some areas have stories, they get a bad name, or just seem a little frightening, but in my experience, I've never come across any of them that could be put down to simple superstition. I'll even prove it. Prove what, lad, said Mr. Dale, suddenly apprehensive. I fancy a stroll before I head back to London. I think I'll take a look. Standing up abruptly, the farmer appeared now more anxious than angry. His upper lip quivered, and he had the appearance of a man who had been holding a destructive amount of stress from the outside world, just waiting to be vented. You mustn't go there, he shouted. Please, Mr. Dale, I don't mean to offend you. John's thoughts now turned back to the deal at hand, and with nothing yet signed, he did not wish to jeopardize it with his curiosity. How would he explain that to his client? The old man slumped back down into his seat as his eyes glazed over, as if fighting a losing battle against an onslaught of terrible memories. I lost my son to that place, he said, trailing off. Oh God, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Dale. Please accept my apologies. Let's just forget the whole thing. No, it's not your fault. The old farmer smiled across the table with a sorrowful countenance. No one talks about my boy. I'm not allowed to. The locals think that just speaking about him and the others will somehow bring more misery down to the village. After a brief pause of contemplation, he broke down saying, He was a good lad. We're not built to lose our children. Burying his head in his hands, he began sobbing uncontrollably. John did not know what to say. He could only offer, I'm so sorry, is there anything I can do? Wiping the tears from his eyes, Dale sat back in his chair mournfully. After a few deep breaths, he composed himself and then spoke, his voice quivering with held back emotion. No one knows when it started, and no one knows why. What started, asked John, his compassion now overpowered by his curiosity. I grew up in this village, and even when I was a boy, people didn't have a clue. Sure, they talked about old stories, about a dispute between two powerful families which went back hundreds of years. Dale leaned forward, scratching the greying stubble on his chin, before continuing. But no one knew their names, at least no one who was willing to talk about the hill. The deeds to that land are probably sitting in some solicitor's safe, with the owner living the high life somewhere, unaware of the price we've all paid. Surely there must be a record of the owners. I'm sure there is that, but you won't find anyone around here who wants to know. Over the years, the odd person would ignore the warnings and venture up there. Normally, kids daring one another to have a go. But they never come back. Dale shuffled in his seat uncomfortably as tears began to fill his eyes once more. My boy, he didn't listen. And just like the others, he went up there and he was gone. Surely you went after him, asked John in disbelief. Yes, I did. I tried to go up there, but as broken by grief as my wife and other children were, they pulled me back from the foot of the hill. They knew it would take me to. So, your own son could have been up there, hurt, dying, and you didn't go up after him, all because of a stupid superstition. The idea that myths and lies could have resulted in a young boy's death enraged John, yet he felt ashamed of himself as soon as the words left his mouth. Dale suddenly flew across the table, grabbing his now unwelcome guest by the collar, battering him against the old stove. Who do you think you're talking to? Dale screamed, his voice shaking John to his core. For an old man, he was still as strong as an ox. 
For a brief moment, he thought that the farmer was going to hear him, but then, just as quickly, Dale relinquished his grip, turning his back. When you have three other children to feed and a wife who would be heartbroken, you'd think twice about going up there too. Besides, a few of the boys from the village helped my wife, and well, no one would let me go. Not because they cared about me, well, maybe some did, but mainly because they live in constant fear of that place, of what's up there, that it might come down and pay us all a visit. Straightening a chair, the old farmer scribbled his signature on the remaining papers and then asked John to leave, which he did after offering his apologies once more. At the door, both men gave their polite goodbyes, with Dale simply adding, There's an old saying around here, best leave alone, you'd be wise to listen to it. Despite being shaken by the old farmer's volatile reaction to his inquiries, John was still certain that he wanted to visit the hill. Knowing that those in the village would try to dissuade or even physically restrain him from doing so, he was resolute in driving there immediately from the farm. As he got underway, he thought that perhaps some good could come of it. He could break their fear of that place. But it was more so his stubbornness which now motivated him. He wanted to prove he was right, and if he discovered a piece of land perfect for development in the process, all the better.